Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. You can find it on page 930 there in the Pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at this text this week and next. I was trying to deal with it all in one, but I decided to go ahead and break it up just to cover everything we needed to cover. You know, one of the biggest changes that we experience in the Christian life is the transformation of the will. That we go from focusing and living for our own ambitions, our own hopes, our plans, our desires, and, and, and saying basically, living life as if to say, my will be done, to now beginning to say, thy will be done. From pleading and striving and pursuing our own efforts, our own glory, our own ambitions, our own little kingdoms, to now earnestly praying Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where before we ran after worldly desires in selfish ambition, now in Christ we find that we have new affections, new desires, new longings, new inclinations to do the will of God, to live for Him to love Him and to earnestly strive to follow Christ every day. We want the will of the Lord to be done here on earth, in our lives, among God's people, and even among those who as of this moment are not. But friends, let's be honest with ourselves and say that it is a whole lot easier for us to want the will of the Lord to be done than it is for us to one, know exactly what that is, and two, to really want to walk in it, right? Now, we know, of course, you know, that God's clear commands, His clear will, things like, okay, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, know those, got those, can obviously see that, but what does the Lord's will say for my relationships, What's the Lord's will say for, you know, where I should live or what I should do for a living or how I should spend my time or or energy? How do we make any number of seemingly significant or even insignificant decisions for that point matter uh, that have no clear biblical reference tied to them? How do I know whether or not my thoughts are truly honoring to Christ? And what happens when other brothers and sisters in Christ happen to disagree with me? How do we know that we are truly desiring to let the will of the Lord be done? Now, if you're here and you happen to be hoping for some sort of direct revelation as to who you should marry or what you should do for a living or or anything like that, this text is not going to speak to that. In fact, no text actually speaks directly to that. Instead, what the Bible does is it gives us principles and priorities of what we are to pursue. The Bible is not an instruction manual of a step-by-step process and how we, if we just do these things in a sequential manner, then we're going to end up doing the will of God perfectly. Instead, it gives us wisdom for how we are to live in relationship with Him. 
Many of the things that we encounter in life are, are not completely clear. It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. And so it requires earnest effort. It requires humility and, and patience and reverence and dependence upon Christ. We need godly wisdom, not the wisdom of this world. And most importantly, it requires repentance and faith for us to walk in the will of God us to truly put Christ first in our lives. In our text this morning, we are going to find a whole bunch of people that want to do the will of the Lord, but have different opinions on what that actually means. And yet, we see them coming to resolutions as they strive together to put Christ first, putting God's will before their own. And so what we're going to see this morning and, and next week in Acts chapter 21 verses 1 through 26 is that obeying the will of God requires walking in the Spirit and having a heart for the gospel. Obeying the will of God requires walking in the Spirit and having a heart for the gospel. That sounds real easy, but that's really hard to do. And so we need to pray for God's grace so that we might earnestly desire to let the will of the Lord be done as we approach Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, And when we, that's Paul and his companions, had parted from the Ephesian elders and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Uh, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we, were greeted, uh, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. 
On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews, those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, an offering presented for each one of them. Now here we have another one of those really, really exciting travel journals. You know, Paul went from this place to that place to that place, and he met up with those people over there, followed by a riveting discussion about Jewish customs. And so again, what do we do with that? See, we... Make sure to keep up with believers in different places so that you know, we can encourage them and, and have fellowship with them in the Lord and, and make sure we observe the law of Moses, at least with regards to vows and purification. Well, let's see, you know, I, I haven't made any vows to the Lord recently, so I'm okay there. You know, I, I took a shower this morning, so that's basically the equivalent of being purified, right? And, and uh, as far as observance to the law goes, well, you know, the, we, we want to uphold the Sabbath, the, the day of rest, and so, you know, let's go do that. I'm ready for a nap. Amen, right? But is that really what it means to do the will of God? <laughs> Maybe to a degree, but that's not what the Lord has in mind. Now, this might not be the most exhilarating or immediately applicable passage of Scripture, but it does give us a snapshot as to what it looks like to earnestly strive to do the will of God. We can see Paul and the church walking in the Spirit, putting into practice the concepts that Paul teaches us in his other letters, things like the fellowship of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, sanctification of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. We're able to see them go beyond a mere intellectual affirmation of the gospel to show us what it looks like to earnestly have a heart for the gospel as it applies to different people. We want to learn principles from these first believers so that we too might let the will of the Lord be done. And so this morning, I want to focus on walking in the Spirit, and then next week, Lord willing, We'll look more carefully as to what it means to truly have a heart for the gospel. And so, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, friends, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot know and we cannot do the will of God. 
It's impossible. Now, we might be able to gain some intellectual concept of God and of His will on the words of the pages of our Bibles, but it's not written upon our hearts. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no ability to do the will of God. But by God's grace, when He opens our eyes to see the reality of our sin, how we have rebelled against this one true and holy God who made and sustains all things, when he has, He's helped us to see our desperate need of our Lord Jesus Christ died and raised on behalf of us to save us from our sin, we receive the Holy Spirit as we repent of our sin and believe upon Him. And because that is now the case, because we have received the Holy Spirit, we can now walk in the Holy Spirit in a way that we can never walk before. No longer needing to to live in the flesh and do the works of the flesh, we can now actually obey God. We can do His will by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. But what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It's kind of nebulous and it's we don't really know, like, we don't talk about this kind of thing. Is, is there some kind of line, right? Like, if I'm on this side of the line, then I'm walking in the Spirit. But if I'm on this side of the line over here, I'm, I'm living in the flesh. Or, or is it like a path that you follow, right? Just follow the yellow brick road of, of walking in the Spirit, and, and there you go. Like, how do we think about it? Is, is it the idea of, of letting go and letting God? You know, I mean, you might have heard that phrase before where it's just like, basically, I got to get out of the way. I kind of got to surrender myself and, and God's got to live in and through me. And I'm just kind of like, you know, a puppet, right? Just kind of moving around or like an automaton that it's able to function through Holy Spirit power. Is that what it means? How can we know that we're walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh? How can we know that we are truly submitted to the Holy Spirit to do the will of God? Well, friends, this is one, why we need God's Word. We, we need those characteristics that Paul describes in, in, say, Romans 8 or Galatians 5 of what it means to walk in the Spirit. But we also need snapshots pictures of how that's actually being lived out in the life of the church through passages like this one. And so when you think about it on those terms, this this passage, it suddenly says something to us. You see, like in our internship, we've we always have our interns read through the nine marks of a healthy church, right? If you become a member of this church, we give you two books. What is a healthy church? What is a healthy church member? Talks about those nine marks. It's one thing to read about the concepts of those nine marks of a healthy church. It's another thing to say, go to the nine marks weekender and see how those are lived out, which is why we always send our, our interns to go there, because they're able to see it now function in the life of the church, and it's so helpful for them. So this passage is helpful for us to be able to see what does it look like to walk in the Spirit. And so how can we know that we're truly submitted to the Spirit to do the will of God? How do we know that we're truly walking in the Spirit? Well, this passage provides us with six gauges to help us to measure that in our own life. And I'm talking about gauges, right? Like we like gauges or we should like gauges. Gauges are important. Gauges are helpful When you get in your car, it has all sorts of gauges to let you know how that car is operating. Is it in good working order? 
Now, maybe you don't pay attention to those gauges. Maybe you only look at, say, the gas gauge to know whether or not you're, you're on F or, or you're on E or you're somewhere in between. And, and maybe occasionally you look at the speedometer, right? Or, or, or maybe you just kind of hope and pray that that, uh, that uh, check engine light doesn't start coming on and, and flashing at you. But the more we understand these gauges and how they work, then the more we can know how that vehicle is running. Well, these gauges will help us to assess how we're walking in the Spirit. So you heard of the Fitbit, right? This is the Holy Spirit bit, right? Help us know how we're walking in the Spirit. And so the first gauge that we have is faith. It's kind of obvious, right, that without faith, we cannot please God. It's Hebrews 11. Faith is a gift of God, according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have received the promised Holy Spirit. And through the daily exercise of that faith, we can walk in the Spirit and do the will of God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, Paul tells us that whatever we do that does not proceed from faith as an active striving to trust and to follow Jesus, then it's sin. And so Paul says that to believers. So believers, it's possible for you to walk by faith, right? or it's possible for you to live in such a way that you're not living your life, you're not proceeding from faith. So believers failing to exercise this faith can and do sin. Now when we consider our passage here, Acts 21, everyone mentioned in this passage is a follower of Christ. Everyone in this passage is a spirit-indwelt believer as far as we know. And every one of them, even the Jews that are down there in verses 20 and 21 who are zealous for the law, They are striving to live by faith in the promises and provisions of God. Now, they may not have come to the right conclusions, but all of them were trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and the hope of eternal life. And all of them were striving actively to fight the good fight of faith. You see, you cannot walk in the Spirit to obey the will of God if you don't have the Spirit through faith in Christ. So if you're here as someone who says, you know what, I, I don't know, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. You talk about the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life. I don't even know what that is. Or friends, just know that you can't live a life that's pleasing to the Lord apart from faith, apart from the reception of the Holy Spirit to then live for Him. But even as Christians, we want to exercise that faith. We're not walking in the Spirit to obey the will of God without intentional, active exercise of that faith to love and to long for and follow Christ. And so it's important to keep in mind this first gauge is so essential for all of us. We we want to exercise our faith. It's the difference between that, that gauge being on F or being on E. The second gauge we see in this text is the fellowship of the Spirit. 
2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, and, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 speaks of the fellowship that comes from the Spirit. This fellowship is not just the fellowship that we now have vertically with God through faith in Christ, but also the fellowship horizontally with one another. We have this fellowship with each other in Christ, and that's given by the Holy Spirit. He unites us together as the body of Christ. And this fellowship is a spiritual unification. It's a communion with the saints given through those who are in Christ. This is not a, a, just simply a friendship or a fuzzy feeling. Right? Now, when we think about our, our text here, the last time we were together, we looked at the end of chapter 20, we saw how much Paul loved the Ephesian elders and how much they loved him. And so you're like, Chad, you just said it wasn't about friendship or about warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, let me just continue, right? Because that's where our text picks up, right? Verse 1 says that when we had parted from them, and that's the idea of we just had to tear ourselves away from them, we set sail. And as they had opportunity, Paul and his companions stayed with the believers in these different towns. You see Tyre there in verses 3 through 6, Ptolemaeus in verse 7, and Caesarea in verses 8 through 15. Now here's the thing. Paul and his companions probably didn't know these people all that well. Luke never mentions Paul having ever entered into Tyre or Ptolemaeus. Now, he does speak of Caesarea. Paul, on his, when he was coming back from his second missionary journey, happened to stop there. But we don't know how long he was there. And he was, even in that time, on his way to Jerusalem. And so Paul probably wasn't particularly close to these people. I don't imagine that, this was the, that, that Paul was anywhere near as relationally close as he was to those Ephesian elders that he had spent three years with. And yet, we see them showing heartfelt hospitality care and concern. These disciples in these three cities, they gave Paul and, and his company food and shelter. They, no doubt being entire for seven days, they surely worshiped the Lord together. Perhaps Paul took that opportunity within that week to teach them as much as he could. But after pleading with Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, we, we even see the whole church, the entire body, Wives and children included, following Paul as he makes his way to the ship. They kneel down, they pray together on the beach, said farewell. In Ptolemaeus, they greeted one another, and, and Paul and company stayed with them for a day. And in spending a number of days in Caesarea, we can again see their care and concern for one another, even in Paul's question in verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? You see, through faith in Christ, not only do we have fellowship with God, but we now have fellowship with one another. Because this is a spiritual union, a, a communion of the saints that is grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not because we're all chummy with one another, or because we happen to eat food together or visit one another's homes, though that might be part of it. But it's because we have been joined together in Christ. We now have communion with each other through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that word fellowship, it means a, a sharing. It means a, a giving. There's a commitment that's there. It says, this is my body. 
I'm in communion with them. I'm, I'm partnering with them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This cannot happen on a whim. Cannot happen randomly as we float in or out or, or as we just kind of keep our distance from the rest of them without really sharing or giving of ourselves. That's why these believers, though most would not have known Paul well, all welcomed him and loved him and shared their resources with him because they were partners in the gospel. This is the fellowship that comes from the Spirit. They are loving and living out the fellowship that comes from him and so this is another way that we can know whether or not we're actually walking in the will of God. This is another gauge for us to be able to assess, okay, am I really striving to let the will of the Lord be done? Fellowship of the Holy Spirit is just going to come as a consequence of our earnest faith in Christ. A closely related gauge to that, third gauge, is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is the effect that the Holy Spirit has in your life, meaning you don't do it. You can't make this happen. This is the, the Holy Spirit's work in you, okay? As, as Paul taught earlier uh, in Galatians chapter 5, he says, listen, the works of the flesh, they're evident. They're just as evident in their day as, as they are in our day. Right? Things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, but also things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. He adds drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, as I, war I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, I say that because you don't see any of that kind of thing among these Christians mentioned here in this text. Okay? They weren't living according to the flesh. Right? Instead, we see the fruit of the Spirit. This love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control being expressed. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Friends, it's evident in their interactions, even in the face of these disagreements, that their lives were bearing the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. They were not professing a faith in Jesus and then living and doing whatever they wanted. No, the transforming work of the Spirit was evident in their lives as they intentionally sought to walk in the Spirit. And even down below in verses 17 through 26, we see a fourth gauge, right? The sanctification of the Spirit. Although there was confusion as to how to live this out, there was this clear desire for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to change them, to transform them into the likeness of Christ so that they might live holy and blameless before Him. That was their goal. Whether the Jews who desired to keep the custom of God's holy law or those four men who made vows or James and Paul as they considered how to faithfully apply the gospel to them, everyone here had this earnest desire to live in holiness and purity before God. And not just for themselves, but for the entire body. 
They wanted to live in such a way that, that the sanctification of the Spirit would be active in the entire church of God. A desire, an active pursuit to see ourselves and, and the whole church of God growing into the likeness of Christ. Okay, so all of that, all of those gauges are going on kind of in, in just in the context of what's happening here. We've got to get that. Faith, fellowship, fruit, and sanctification of the Spirit are at play when we come to the fifth and most subjective gauge, the leading of the Spirit. It's the leading of the Spirit that results in this disagreement in verses 1 through 6. When we come to faith in Christ by, by grace, friends, we come into a relationship with God. We come into this, this dynamic relationship with God. It's not God just saying, okay, here you go. My rules, obey them. God loving us and interacting with us and living with us and taking His Word and applying it to our lives so that we might live for Him. So that we might follow Him. The Spirit directs. The Spirit leads. He helps us to, to know the will of God and to do the will of God and to follow after Him. And so when God reveals Himself to us and we're able to speak to Him follow Him and depend on Him to direct us to His will as He continues to draw us to Himself. The leading of the Spirit will draw us to Himself. We have to keep this in mind, right? So the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, though subjective, it, one, it'll never contradict the Spirit-inspired Word of God, but this leading of the Spirit is a prompting or a directing of the Holy Spirit to act upon the Word of God in such a way that it leads us to greater intimacy with Him. Okay? It's not just like, okay, this is my will, do it, or this is what's right, do it. It's meant to lead us to greater intimacy with God. The Holy Spirit will never lead us to disobey God's Word, and nor will He lead us to make decisions that will hinder our relationship with Him or the relationships of other people with Him. It's important to keep in mind. The Holy Spirit won't, won't lead you to take a job where there's not a good church or, or to marry an unbeliever. The leading of the Holy Spirit is more than a personal feeling, a, a thought, a desire, or opinion that, that happens to enter into your head, and it is certainly less authoritative than God's eternal Word. Now, if that sounds still a little bit nebulous to you, let's just examine how we see the leading of the Holy Spirit working throughout the book of Acts, just kind of give you some, some examples there, which are consistent with the way we see the Holy Spirit leading throughout the New Testament. Okay? Fair enough, right? So here we go. Now, number one, the church was filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly and faithfully proclaim the Word of God. Another one, Philip was directed by the Holy Spirit to approach the Ethiopian eunuch, where he overheard him reading from Isaiah and was able to get into a gospel conversation. The Holy Spirit told Peter 
to go with Cornelius' servants in order that he might proclaim the gospel to them, and we see the first Gentile converts to Christianity. The Holy Spirit directed the elders at the church of Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas for his missionary work. The Holy Spirit oversaw the Jerusalem Council in, in chapter 15, which unified the Jew and Gentile church in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, the Spirit of Jesus actually forbade Paul from preaching the gospel in Asia because it was his intention for Paul to go to Macedonia. Paul already had gospel workers, or God already had gospel workers in Asia, and God wanted him in Macedonia. In chapter 19, we see that Paul was resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And last week in chapter 20, verse 22, he even said that he was constrained. The idea of being bound by the Spirit to go, even though he knew that imprisonments and afflictions awaited him. And that, that, that even said something to me this week. Just like, man, it's like, wow. The reality is, like, how, how is it that Paul enters into suffering and affliction? How is it that he's willing to enter into chains? Because he sees himself a slave to Christ. He sees himself being bound by the Holy Spirit. If you don't see yourself as that, then no, you won't. And so it's under that direction that Paul continues to make his way to Jerusalem. But the other Christians had a different inclination. When Paul was in Tyre, verse 4 says that through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so this, it's not like they're just like, Paul, I, I just, you know, I flipped a coin and the coin said, don't go. Or Paul, you know, I like you. I want to hang out here with us. Don't go. No, it's through the Spirit. Down in verses 10 and through 12, the prophet Agabus, who had already faithfully predicted a famine back in chapter 11, he came down from Judea, he grabs Paul's belt, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, tells him that he's going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And again, he says, thus says the Lord. This, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is where it's coming from. Now, friends, it doesn't require some second baptism in the Holy Spirit to kind of figure this whole thing out. I mean, after all, where did Agabus come from? He came down from Judea. What city is in Judea? Jerusalem. So, I mean, the slightest bit of social awareness and a quick read of Proverbs can give you all the spiritual wisdom you really need to know that that's not a good idea. But yet, Luke affirms Agabus' message was from the Holy Spirit. And it was so convincing that even Luke and all of Paul's other traveling companions, along with the whole church of Caesarea, urged him not to go. So you got Paul over here and everybody else over here. Paul's saying, no, Spirit is telling me to go. And they're all saying, no, Spirit's saying, don't go. Go. Don't go. So what do we do with that? See, the Spirit is leading Paul seemingly in one way and appears to be leading everyone else, including Paul's own companions, in another way. And so should we take from this 
that neither are actually the leading of the Spirit, but just personal inclinations. This is just what, what Paul wants to do, and this is what they want them to do. And it's just kind of whatever. Anything goes. It's not, it's not really from the Spirit at all. Well, the text doesn't say that. Should we take this then as a justification to do whatever we want to do, regardless of the counsel of the church? Does this mean that leadership is always right and beyond questioning? Because Paul's an apostle. Everybody else not an apostle. So Paul gets to do what he wants. Should we understand this prophecy as a bunch of fooey since Agabus' prediction was not entirely accurate in, in the most literal word-for-word sense? Well, the answer to all these questions is no. You see... The Holy Spirit revealed to all, what what the Holy Spirit revealed to all was that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. Everybody agreed on that, right? Everybody understood that, okay? Paul knew ever since his conversion that he would suffer for the name of Christ, Paul showed active dependence upon the Holy Spirit when his plans and his agendas got changed. There were times where he had to flee for his life. He had to leave Thessalonica after only being there for three weeks. He had to flee Philippi before he was ready. He, he wasn't even allowed to speak the gospel in, in Asia, but had to go on to Macedonia. We see Paul is, is dependent upon the direction of the Holy Spirit, but by the time you get to chapter 19 and 20, the Holy Spirit has made it clear to him what comes next. Jerusalem and imprisonment and afflictions. This is what's coming your way, Paul. And he knew that, and he was willing, as he says there in verse 13, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. But even more than that, Paul is not exerting his own ideas his own opinions, his own thoughts, his own desires here. Nor is he disobeying God by refusing to follow their counsel. Instead, we can see him following in the footsteps of Christ. You see, just like Jesus, as he sets his face to Jerusalem, we are told three times of his impending afflictions. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, not my will, but yours be done. We see Paul saying, I'm I'm willing to be imprisoned and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul had received the same revelation as the church. The church received that revelation from the spirit of Paul's imprisonment, and they concluded that it would be best for the gospel if he did not go but continue on his work. Paul received the same revelation and understood this as what Jesus had promised at his conversion, that this would be his opportunity to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, to be a a public display of the glory of God over everything that this world has to offer, over the, the sufficiency of God's grace for salvation, for transformation, that I'm willing to let it all go for the sake of Christ, and that is far, far better. If only I may attain to the resurrection of Jesus. He's willing to give up anything for it. 
And again, this wasn't because he had some death wish, because the Spirit had led Paul to flee many times before, but now, now his time had come to fulfill this ministry that Christ had given him. And in terms of the accuracy of Agabus's prophecy, Agabus's prophecy was not meant to be an exact word-for-word, play-by-play, but a general description of what would happen. Though a mob would, of Jews would attack Paul and beat him, and a Roman tribune would have to step in and basically save him and arrest him, the effect was the same. Agabus says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Luke agrees with him on that. Agabus uses symbolism like that of the Old Testament prophet. And, and we wouldn't press that too far for a literal word-for-word fulfillment, right? Every time that an Old Testament prophet uses some sort of illustration to make his point, we don't like try to, to find a one-for-one correlation. Otherwise, what do you do with uh, the fact that Ezekiel may cooked his food over cow dung? I, I don't know. But even more than that, if you looked ahead at at chapter 28, verse 17, when Paul describes his imprisonment to the Jews who were there living in Rome, he actually expresses it just like Agabus did. He said, My brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Just like Agabus said. And so again, the leading of the Holy Spirit that Paul would be bound and delivered to the Romans in Jerusalem was correct. They simply arrived at different implications of that truth. The church thought that it was best for the gospel for Paul not to go. Paul thought it was best for the gospel for him to go. But either way, we see Both were seeking to put Christ first. The leading of the Holy Spirit directs us to Christ to live and to proclaim the gospel, not away from it. We've got to get that. Let's not try to hyper-spiritualize your own longings and your own desires. The Holy Spirit will lead, yes, but He will lead you to God, not away from Him. Which is why we're also given a sixth gauge, the unity of the Spirit. You see, though they had arrived at different conclusions here, Paul did not say, well, you know, just forget you guys. I'm an apostle. You're just scum. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. No, we heard his love for him. And then he said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? He he knew their concern. And the church wasn't like, look, Paul, we clearly have a majority here. Everybody else is over here. You're the only one over here. So you're clearly in the wrong. Instead, what we see is them weeping. Weeping for a man who in the first part of his life that we hear about in Scripture actually bound 
and handed Christians over to be imprisoned. And they're weeping for him. But since he would not be persuaded, they ceased, and all could affirm this statement in unity. Let the will of the Lord be done. It's not about what I want. It's not about my desire, no matter how how good I think it might be. It's not about where I want to live or what I want to do, who I want to marry, any of that kind of stuff. It's, It's let the will of the Lord be done. See, though they were not unanimous in their conclusions, they were united in the Spirit because their earnest desire was to put Christ first in all things, to let the will of the Lord be done, not their own. So regardless of what disagreements you may happen to face with another brother or sister in Christ, or or even a church for that matter, is that central to you? You want the will of the Lord to be done. That's fruit of the Spirit. And when it comes to us obeying the will of God in in, in our own given situations, and though our circumstances may be very, very different, those six gauges are helpful for us to assess whether or not we are truly walking in the Spirit or if we are seeking to justify our own wants and feelings and opinions and thoughts and plans and desires because we're living in the flesh. Are you exercising faith? Are you living in in this active dependence and trust upon God, His will, His timing for, for all things in your life? Or are you attempting to place your hope and your trust in someone or something else? What is it that you're looking to for for peace or for comfort? Are you earnestly seeking to learn Christ through repentance and faith? Or or are you just kind of assuming, you know, I I got this. Good. Got my objective faith in my back pocket and I'm going to live and do what I please. Are you seeking as his disciple to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? That's how Jesus defines discipleship. Is it your ambition for for Christ to truly be first in everything? Or are you just okay with him being first in some things? Will that decision, whatever that might be, lead you to enjoy Christ more? As far as fellowship goes, are you living in the fellowship of the Spirit? Are are you actively committed to partnering with the communion of the saints? Are you giving and sharing of yourself with the body? Now, friends, I I say this because we're so apt to redefine fellowship into saying, basically, as long as we're eating together, we have fellowship. And so often, we want fellowship, we just don't want to do anything about it. When fellowship by nature is giving, it's by nature of, of committing, 
of putting ourselves out there, not waiting for you to come to me and demanding that of you. Like, you've got to do this for me, and then I'll, I'll consider having fellowship with you. No, it's, I'm committed to Christ. You're committed to Christ. I want to commit to you. Because we have a communion. We share in the communion of the saints. We're partnering in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe... Maybe you're trying to cut yourself off from the fellowship that comes from the Spirit because you don't really want to submit your desires in order to walk in the Spirit. My friends, you've got to realize that that is contrary both to the will of God and to the work of the Spirit. You can't truly walk in obedience while neglecting the fellowship of the Spirit. Are you bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, or is your life more characterized by the works of the flesh? When conflicts and and disagreements arise, when the heat is on in your life, are you bearing the good fruit of the Spirit or the bad fruit of living in the flesh? Are you earnestly pursuing sanctification in the Holy Spirit? Or are you hoping that Jesus can just be your get-out-of-hell-free card? Are you motivated by the love and character of Christ to pursue purity and holiness? Or are you seeking to serve yourself? Is your life continually being conformed to godliness and biblical wisdom? Or are you displaying the foolishness of the world? Is that, is that leading that you are sensing based upon feelings, based upon desires and opinions, or is it really from the Spirit and accompanied by all other spiritual qualities? Is it consistent with God's Word? Because we're to test the spirits to see whether or not from, they're from God, and what do we test them against? We test them against God's Word. Does this leading comply with the clear call of Scripture? Will will it serve to exalt Christ? And if so, in what way? Will it lead you to greater intimacy with Christ and enable you to more clearly be conformed to His image and to help other people to do the same? And are you striving, by God's grace, to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Or is there enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger or bitterness, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and separation from the body of Christ? As the work of the Spirit in us and in the body brings life, it builds up, it produces peace. Not just for me personally, but for the entire body. So that the body can get behind it as well. Walking in the Spirit is not an individual affair. Now again, guys, these are gauges to help us to read where we actually are on things. If you just felt like I pummeled you with a thousand little cuts, please know that I had to ask myself those questions before I asked them of you. 
But this is God's grace to us to help us to really assess where we actually are. Again, this is, this is not a step-by-step process. These are gauges, a set of gauges to help us to assess whether or not we're truly striving to walk in the Spirit or whether or not we are living in the flesh. But friends, these gauges are consistent with God's Word and God's work. And when they are not reading in the red, when they are not flashing warning lights at us, they help us to know that we are operating within the parameters of obedience to the will of God. When that's the case, we all can be unified in it. Friends, God might not be calling you to go to Jerusalem or to deliver yourself up to prison. But He is calling us all to turn from our desire to live for ourselves and to follow Christ in faith. Friends, you must understand that He has loved us so, so much that He sent His one and only Son to live a life of perfect obedience to all of God's law, to live a life in perfect dependence upon the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit in every way, who is willing to lay down his life and take it up again so that you might be forgiven of your sin and have life in his name. I did that for you. He loved you so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who for our sakes died and was raised. He has enabled us now to walk in obedience to God as we love him and live in dependence upon him. He has sealed us with his long-promised gift of the Holy Spirit, imparting to us grace and wisdom every day so that we might walk in this faith. In each and every decision of your life, you have an opportunity. You have a choice to make, either to walk in the Spirit or to live in the flesh. In each and every situation and circumstance of your life, every single decision, God gives us His Word and He gives us His Spirit. The grace that we need to trust and follow Him regardless of the issues that we might face so that we can together with one voice say, let the will of the Lord be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And so obeying the will of God requires walking in the Spirit and having a heart for the Gospel. And I pray that that faith, that, that fellowship and fruit, the sanctification of the Spirit, that leading and the unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ would be evident in us all as we strive to know and to do the will of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us snapshots like this so that we can be able to compare like how, how we're living and what we're doing in light of, of your intentions for us. That we know that situations and circumstances are not the same in our lives. Obviously, we're not Paul and we're not early church disciples from Tyre or Ptolemaeus. We know that you have called us all to follow Christ.
that you have called each and every one of us to live for him. You have given each and every one of us your spirit so that we might walk after you. So Lord, I pray that we would look upon this truth and rejoice and delight that we are not lost, that we are not dead, we are no longer enslaved by our flesh, but that we now have the freedom and the ability to do your will. God, I pray that that would be our earnest desire, not to gain your love, but in recognition of your love. And so, God, we ask that that Christ would be our vision. It's in his name we pray. Amen.